Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kachi, and this week we are joined by Eddie Chan, founding partner of Intuito Ventures, which employs a hyper-local strategy by backing entrepreneurs in Indonesia. With over $230 million in assets under management, the firm has quickly become one of the largest Indonesia-only based firms. Eddie and I had a fun conversation on the reasons why hyper-local strategies can work, what these regions need to have to scale, and some of the interesting ways that they leverage their LP base to help with portfolio building. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation with Eddie, so let's get right into the show now. I'm absolutely thrilled to have this week's show sponsored by Frank Rimmerman, who serve as home for over 500 VC firms for their tax and audit needs. They're also one of the largest providers of services for the emerging manager community. And as somebody that's worked with them for over 10 years, I can attest to the early commitment they made to MicroVC when it was first getting started. If you're a venture firm in the market for audit and tax, be sure to give them a call. Eddie, it's so great to see you, and thanks for uh, jumping on the show with us. Hey, Samir, it's really an honor. I've been privileged to partner with you since uh, pre-inception of our firm in 2016. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been so many years since we had those original conversations pre-fund one, and so much has happened, obviously, since then. Perhaps a good place to start the conversation is going through your background quickly and really the the factors that led up to you starting the firm back in 2016. Yeah, so we launched the firm about six years ago, but um, it's really a tale of serendipity. You know, our firm name is Integrity Sincerity with an Appreciation for Serendipity in the Local Language of Integritas Tulis Jitto Henson Tuto. And I would like to say that I had the fortune, you know, once again, to be born in the Silicon Valley in 1970s. And, you know, at that time, the U.S. took the large volume of grad students from three specific countries, each of Taiwan, Korea, and Israel. And so my parents had the privilege to come here in Silicon Valley and take some of their studies, if you will, and then ultimately, you know, transition and bring that back to Taiwan to build out Taiwan's tech ecosystem in the hometown I grew up in large part, Shinshu, Taiwan. So I grew up in Yule, Silicon Valley, as well as, you know, Taiwan, Silicon Valley with companies like TSMC, founded by Morris Chang, that grew up in market, studied in the U.S. and built out TSMC to, you know, four or $500 billion company. So seeing that growing up changed my mindset, really understanding the, 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 the keys of, you know, what Silicon Valley has done for so many people and so many ecosystems, inspiring folks to bring back a lot of their learnings. Because prior to that, in their home country, there's really nothing to point to. And you pursue more of a traditional path, whether it be banking, law, you know, doctor, you know, et cetera. So I saw that um, in the 90s, I had the privilege to come back to Silicon Valley, get my initial exposure to venture capital when I was in both high school and concurrently enrolled in college at Berkeley. I worked at a place that, Samir, I know you spent time at Silicon Valley Bank way back when in the 90s for my first job. Back in the 90s, you know, covered a lot of companies, including right when Google got started. I was at uh, Montgomery Securities, one of the four horsemen in technology investment banking back then. So that gave me some exposure. And I think really the, the thing that got me in venture investing was I had the privilege to work at a fund backed by Asian governments and financial and technology conglomerates. And back then, to be honest, um, the financial conglomerates out of Asia in particular wanted exposure to what we call online banking uh, today, we call it fintech, but back then, the concept of fintech didn't exist. So I had a privilege to look at a lot of companies, and the folks at Silicon Valley Bank really um, made an introduction that really changed my whole life to the founders of PayPal. So ultimately, I had an opportunity to put a little bit of capital uh, for the fund uh, into PayPal, worked with them a little bit on their Asia efforts. So in the recent PayPal biography, there's multiple references to Taiwan, where we had the privilege to you know partner with the team a little bit. PayPal went public, sold to eBay. Uh, Peter started Founders Fund, which... um. I've been really privileged to be a very small part of you know, all these decades. And today, Founders Fund, along with 35 of the top funds in the world or their founding partners, is investing in Tudo Ventures to enter the Indonesia market. So that was special. Thereafter, I did investing. You know, Palantir with the privilege to be an early investor. I had a large part chance to bring them to certain Asian markets. Same with the firm. 
and also got some exposure to you know the SpaceX, et cetera. Then I was in uh, a corporate MLR in Silicon Valley, then China, covered the Chinese market really from day one. Once again, driven by returnees, just like Taiwan, Korea, Israel, China, the early IPOs uh, were people that study here in Silicon Valley at a Berkeley, at a Stanford, or folks like you know Neil Shen at you know at Yale. 0405, Silicon Valley Bank took a delegation to China, covered a lot of the companies, uh, the funds from day one, you know, called the major Sequoia China, Kleiner China, et cetera. That's when I caught wind of the Indonesian market, frankly. In the 2000s, my clients, uh, like a Goldman Sachs, et cetera, started looking at the market. I would say at the time, there's only 7 million people on the internet in the late 2000s, so I thought it was a little bit early. Today, we do have 220 million people on the internet in Indonesia. My co-founder, Patrick, then, you know, set up Goldman's operations. So instead, I came back to Silicon Valley, did not pursue Indonesia thesis, was a founder and CEO myself, uh, put more of a gray hair, a public company um, executive in place in 2015. Serendipity, once again, brought me to Indonesia in that uh, my co-founder uh, was introduced to me by my best friend in Hong Kong. We started running money on our own balance sheet in the Indonesia market, initially into funds as well as the directs. And on the back of that, we were able to develop a very differentiated thesis to launch the first Indonesia-only independent fund with a super concentrated, involved approach in history. So when you looked at this white space that existed because you had spent time within Indonesia. You know, I always think about hyper-local strategies, and we we started seeing that in the U.S. even, you know, over a decade ago, places like New York and L.A., and each of those areas has thrived because certain characteristics, there's talent, there was uh, capital. When you looked at Indonesia, what exactly led you to the belief that Indonesia was large enough to have a hyper-local strategy? Yeah, that's a, that's a fabulous question. So we really pride ourselves in what we did was we launched the most hyper-local strategy where it was myself, my co-founder, Patrick, once again, who's multi-generation Indonesian, moved back to Indo in 2005, set up Goldman together with eight now eight associates. And what we saw early on were a couple of key drivers that I think we saw back in the day growing up in each of Taiwan, seeing what happened in Korea, Israel, thereafter China and India, was that we did start seeing that initial group of what we defined as Southeast Asia turtle or sea turtle, which you know Forbes gave us credit for in 2017, was we saw early dynamics of folks returning back into the market Early um, indications that the ecosystem was becoming more ripe in a market, once again, on the macro, I don't want to go too heavy on that. It is the fourth largest country in the world at 280 million people with the fastest growing Internet population in the world at 19 percent year over year growth uh, when we're getting into it. So in terms of what was necessary to succeed, A, we thought that human capital was very necessary. We started slowly seeing the reverse brain drain kind of actually be, you know, kind of stopping a little bit and seeing folks for the first time go back in market. You know, we saw companies starting to get funded. You know, frankly, when we started in 2016, there was call it 10 companies with a valuation over 25 million. Today, not to say that we predicted the future, it's in the hundreds of companies, right? Back then there was call it when we started, there's zero unicorns. Today we have 13 unicorns in market. So certainly some macro, I think we certainly start starting human capital going back in the market. The government did uh, advance a, a focus on education. So becoming a larger percentage of GDP. So STEM became more popular. So that was a very critical. So I think human capital, very critical. Another piece was government approach. And we think the government in Asia has done a fabulous job, even in recent times with the omnibus bill, really welcoming call it global capital, whether it be from China, whether it be from US or from India, whereas we are seeing a, a world going the opposite direction, if you will, right? Where maybe Chinese capital is not as receptive in the United States today for CFIUS and whatever reasons. Similarly, in India, Chinese capital maybe is not as recipient. So hence, Chinese capital very open to come to Indonesia, Southeast Asia, where Almost every company that's a unicorn thereafter has chosen a side in the Chinese proxy wars, whether it be Alibaba SoftBank or Tencent JD Meituan. So once in government policy, similar to the United States, where Google, 
Facebook, everyone's starting to take positions into the market. So Indonesia's great job in saying, welcoming both global capital because they appreciate the need for global learning as well as human capital versus kind of decoupling if we're seeing in much of the other parts. So I think government policy in terms of foreign restrict, foreign ownership, et cetera. Also, we started seeing, um, you know, in terms of conglomerate options. So the private sector, we need the private sector, particularly if you're looking at, you know, smart enterprise or B2B or whatever, being open-minded about partnerships. So it is a country for good or for bad, in large part influenced by 50 to 100 diversified conglomerates that are in large part led by second, third generation owners that are CEO or next in line from the mom, dad, aunt, or uncle. And in 2016, 17, I kid you not, the technology weighting was 0% on the local stock exchange. And we started seeing people saying, hey, technology is a nice to have to the next generation. And today, post-COVID, not to say predicted, it is a must-have. So I think private sector adoption. So we don't disrupt it in Tudo Ventures. I'd argue we really kind of amplify and partner with all these, all these legacy players and really help them scale so they don't get disrupted by new players. And then the last piece also, I would say, is financial capital. So we started seeing financial capital slowly trickle into the market. No different than I saw in China, caught in the early 2000s, 04, 05. The venture ecosystem slowly started developing where early ecosystems are dominated by maybe people not sure with technology background, not understanding how to invest. And you start seeing venture investors as the ecosystem gets more mature, global players coming into the market. And so today you have a full stack of capital. When Samir, when I started, I kid you not, we had no idea who you raise your Series A from. In light of that, that's why I need to bring on 35 top funds in the world. You know, if you look at Midas List, dozens of folks on the Midas to back us. So we could take the early stage risk at Intuito Ventures and on the back end bring in all these global players that can attribute incredible insights about how to build businesses, you know, vertical focus, you know, vertical experiences across multiple countries, et cetera. Can you maybe describe a little bit about that last point in terms of capital availability for companies that are in Indonesia? Because you mentioned a few different geographies, and I think you know Israel, China, India have all been marked by both growth in, in terms of talent, but also local capital, as well as capital from the U.S. traveling once companies hit a certain traction point. How have you seen the capital market, I guess, as it relates to follow-on capital coming into these areas over the last six years? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I kid you not, the you know, the, the average size of various rounds, whether it be a pre-A has gone up by, you know, four or five X, similar to Series A, Series B. And I really think that when we started in 2016, started, you know, incubating this idea, talked to you, Samir, in Q4 about our thoughts about partnering with you, and ultimately launched the fund in 2017. I kid you not, in late 16, we there's one unicorn in all of Indonesia, Southeast Asia, you know, probably less than 10. And I think that early on, it was very unclear who you raise your Series A from. Back then, I would like to argue that you know most of the players in the market with capital would sit in Singapore. The Singapore government did a fabulous job, really, you know, coming up with very unique government policies to get behind you know some you know very smart individuals to launch vehicles and also introduced you know certain capital matching plans as well. So I think early on, a lot of the capital in the market predominantly would be Singapore based. The managers that today would fly Indonesia the next day, call you know uh, Philippines and Thailand, you know different you know dish every day of the week. Uh, in Indonesia, predominantly, uh, we found managers that were predominantly, for good or bad, anchored by one or two major families or by a state-owned enterprise. So a little bit more CBC-like, a little bit less independent. In South, in Singapore, um, you know, folks that maybe weren't necessarily from the Southeast Asian countries, but great know-how that would, you know, do Singapore chili crab today, Thai pad Thai, tomorrow, that, you know, Tom Yun soup. So I would say that was kind of the seed, the early stage Series A landscape. And if you had the luxury, so A, you know, would be tough. And then BC was even more of an open question. Now, of course, if you get across the chasm, you get to the world where pink is the world, the Carlisle's world. I've been there forever, right? 
with offices in Hong Kong, Singapore, and the United States. Um, so it was very painful when we started, to be honest. Series A was such an open question, but I will say I credit the entrepreneurs, the, you know, the Nadims of, you know, Gojek, the Ferrinardis of, you know, call it, you know, Traveloka, these kind of local heroes, if you will, putting Southeast Asia on the world stage. So I kid you not, by 2018, we were, had the luxury to go back to market and raise that fund too, because we started seeing global players come to market because they got more familiar, companies got more traction, et cetera. So in 17, once again, 15 companies of valuation over 25 million that were Indonesian homegrown. In 2019, by the time we'd closed second fund and started deploying, that number doubled, call it to maybe, you know, call it like 30 some companies. So we started seeing more. And then in 2020, we see even further acceleration, not to say I predicted the pandemic in part because of company development, ecosystem development, but because the pandemic increasingly folks the Silicon Valley is a place that, you know, Samir, we've been in the industry forever. It used to be you wouldn't drive more than 45 minutes to your deal. Then it became, okay, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll take a flight in, in state. Then it became across the United States in that people slowly started becoming comfortable and post-pandemic even investing without even necessarily meeting the founders. So it allowed ecosystems like Southeast Asia to get on the world stage. So I really, you know, thank the entrepreneurs as well as these global partners for being un- understanding and open to making these investments. So today you have a full stack of capital. A lot of the global players that we've been you know, privileged to partner with do have Singapore offices now called DST, called Head of Sophia, called GGV, Lightspeed, Sequoia, et cetera. So I'd argue it's really like a tennis court. You know, the venture ecosystem started where people played tennis at the net, the hyper-local players like us, Indonesia only, Indonesia focused, maybe more of a regional purview given that we're the only homegrown firm that exclusively backs Indonesian homegrown companies founded by Indonesia. The regional firms historically had their day in the sun. They would fly into the market, invest. But today it's a tennis court and that the regional firms, unless they hyper-localize and get more general partners, because maybe you can't change your founder mix, but your new general partners understand local market, then they're going to be a little bit more challenged, although some have a great brand. But the global players that have come in. Now, the global players, I hate to say it, you know, you're competing against the best players in the market, Ribbit Capital, Ange- I mean, their brand is so strong. They have such know-how from a vertical perspective across multiple jurisdictions they can offer. So the regional investor is getting a little bit more, um, if you call um, a little bit more handicapped, kind of playing tennis in the in no man's land, unless they vertically specialize or hyper-localize their teams. The hyper-local players will win on the inside where they know it inside out. They play tennis. And that's like the Vietnamese in the Vietnam War. I mean, how could they win? You know, worse technology, you know, less capital, less, but, you know, the, the local know-how, that ground, that ground game is so critical. The regional investor, if they don't hyper-localize nor get vertical, then they're going to get schemes in that the global investor plays tennis at the baseline. Maybe they don't purport that they know Indonesia inside out, but they'll say, hey, look, you know, I've seen this play out in China, U.S., India, and I just have so, such a brand, and I'll win before I even get on the court. The game's already over. And that's how the ecosystem's played out. Where Today in Southeast Asia, I'm very proud to say that you have a full stack of capital. I'm no longer concerned. Although day one, we did have to bring on 35 of the top funds in the world or their founding partners. Today, we have a full stack and we take that early stage risk at Intuito Ventures. We write anywhere from one to $25 million tickets on the back end. I kid you not, in some, some rounds, 98% of the capital. We just closed a $100 million round for the Coinbase of the New Southeast Asia. 98% of that capital is from us and our LPs. So when we look at the uh, the capital stack evolving to a point where, you know, as companies hit these traction points, there are people from the U.S., these big firms that are penning checks at the Series A and Series B, you're still operating, you know, heavily in the seed market where you're taking a lot of that early stage risk. And while entrepreneurship isn't the black box it used to be when we first started our careers, there might be unique challenges with certain geos relative to areas like New York, Silicon Valley, of course, where there's plenty of capital, there's plenty of talent. How do you think about navigating some of those unique hyper-local challenges 
in terms of getting companies far enough so that they can attract that Series A, is there anything different from what you experience here in Silicon Valley? Um, you know, I would say that there's a couple of key dynamics, and I think that's why we built our firm this way. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, starting our firm in 2017, we were really, you know, what I call a pre-A firm. Uh, our second fund allowed us to become a Series A firm. Uh, today, I'll argue that Series A is our core focus. We do a little bit of pre-A as well as the ecosystem is really developed with great founders. And then along the way, we do have uh, call an opportunity piece that's within our core vehicle that we scale and really back up the truck into our core names. Now, at early stage, I think that you know sim- certain similar dynamics certainly uh, resound in Indonesia, although a couple of things are, are, are a couple, couple of key points I'll, I'll highlight here. The three core operating pillars of our firm were built off this. A, um, really, I would say that we're single country. Almost all managers will say they cover Southeast Asia as a region, which I'd argue it's 10 different markets, languages, family, power structures, whereas the United States, I would argue, yes, you know, certainly people like to start, let's say, sometimes in New York or, you know, San Francisco and then conquer the other markets. Southeast Asia, it's, 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 quite, it's, it's not homogenous. I'd argue even Indonesia, it's four different markets. You have a $135,000 GDP for 5 million people caught in New York or San Francisco. Next bucket is 60 million people at $7,000, more akin to a Thailand. Then you drop down to a $1,500 for 100 million people and then $620 per capita for like 100 million. So I'd argue the real TAM is 60 to 180 million people. And I think that you really got to understand kind of the demographics. So first, we're single country, whereas I do think uh, you don't get the benefits like in the United States of putting your call center in, let's say, Omaha or whatever, or in China, whereas in Southeast Asia, I'd argue you have multiple uh, call centers because different language. You're going to have multiple legal teams because every country has different legal regulations. You have different finance teams because different uh, accounting regulations. So I think how we navigate is we're single country. We only do Indonesian fried rice. So we're the only hyper-local firm, but global. Now, you may ask what we do for our companies. So the founders, in my experience, generally are, uh, you know, call it relatively young. They're in their their mid-20s, early 30s, not that many second-time founders. Like we have the privilege here in Silicon Valley, you know, in China, more developed ecosystems. So with a lot of these young founders, uh, you know, many cases, early ecosystem days, they did get some, you know, study abroad or whatever. So they were out of the market for a little bit, or maybe they have not familiar with scaling. So what, how we navigate the challenges is three things that we think founders lack the most. So we always tell people we're very involved in three things on a hyper-local, regional, and global basis. First off is what we call, um, you know, really business development and government and regulatory. So Indonesia is a market dominated by 50 to 100 diversified conglomerates, you know, like it or not. And so we're very privileged today to be backed by 35 of the top 50 to 100 conglomerates in country. I really congratulate or thank my partner for that. If you look at the Forbes 50 richest list, we do have the majority have caught the top 15, dozens of the top 50. Similarly, on the online side, a lot of the biggest unicorns, decacorns that are publicly traded or their founding partners, the C-Limited's world, the Gotos, the Grabs, also have deployed capital with us. So we really solved that distribution challenge where we take that founder physically into those meetings and we do this pre-investment. So that's why in six years, we've only done 26 investments. I kid you not, some of our peers, it's public, have done 26 investments in Q3 this year, right? In new companies. So we physically take our founders and see them in action, right? And we see them, you know, if they close the deal, know why. So we, that's why we're heavily B2B or B2B2C early stage. So very focused on operational dependency in that we really understand, you know, what the target market wants. We don't speculate. We're not like top-down investors. So that's one thing we do is we physically take you to see CEO or the right person at each organization and sign those B2B2C or B2B contracts. So distribution is king. Note of them in Silicon Valley. You read what people out of Founders Fund, all the top firms say is that distribution, you may build the best product, but distribution is so critical. So we focus on distribution. Another very unique characteristic, which is no different than any market, is regulatory, 
right? And so we work very closely with regulators, former ministers, United States ambassador and Indonesia X are all invested in Tudo. So we physically take our companies, whether it be, let's say, Pintu, and go to the regulators and help build out the regulations so we can build out that regulatory mode. So getting back to it, we build operational dependency modes with our B2B strategy, having back companies like a Palantir in the past, really those operational. And then similarly on the regulatory modes, really keeping out you know global players where financial services historically doesn't travel well. That's why you can have a very similar types of Stripe companies across the country, right? You have RazorPay in India, you have Zend in our portfolio in Southeast Asia. So really build out regulatory. The next piece we really focus on is really um, on capital stack, right? So Back in the day, it was very challenging to get follow-on capital as an entrepreneur in this market. So what do we do? We brought on 35 of the top funds and one of the founding partners, you know, full stack Midas list. We take the early stage risk and then we physically take them to Silicon Valley, walk them into meetings. You look at our Coinbase of Indonesia business, we brought in, you know, one of our close friends, Pantera, to lead the Series A. Then we brought in our close friends over at Lightspeed to lead a $35 million raise. We just closed a $100 million raise with our key partners that included, you know, called Hedda Sophia, DST, Northstar, kind of you name it, Lightspeed, et cetera, right? So that's a capital stack piece. And then the last piece that we really help you on is HR. In any developing market, you know, like in Indonesia, Historical or STEM, you know, seriously was not that big component. We do need to bring more human capital, whether it be resource from Silicon Valley, where I pretty much worked with the team to build a, a social graph of every Indonesia in the United States with the mostly universities and corporate campuses, where Indonesia is the most internet market in the world for students in America with outside of African planet with only 1,600 Indonesian studying in grad school. Singapore, Indonesia is 280 million. Singapore is 5 million people. I kid you not the same number of people. So we've done that going on those university campuses, uh, no different than we've seen with many other you know, great investors over the years. And we place these people, human capital, into our companies. And we have a similar business model in Indonesia where we cover all the top universities and corporate campuses in country called the Bumi program, where we built that stack rank and we bring human capital as well as financial capital and distribution and regulatory strategy into early stage businesses. And we do that on a hyper-local basis, but also globally so that no other firm in Southeast Asia has a presence in Silicon Valley where I do spend six to seven months a year. You mentioned something that I, I find interesting, which is some of your backers are actually quite strategic to your portfolio companies. So really looking at the LP side of the equation and with hyperlocal firms. And, you know, I think you and I had this conversation way back in 2017. There are these unique hurdles from an LP's perspective and perception that, you know, is it large enough to actually generate those venture type of returns? I, I saw this back in 2012 in LA, for example, where people said, well, LA is not really a big enough market. And if we do something, we're going to do one fund. Can you walk us through maybe those early days of raising, which I know fund one was 20 million, your last fund was 144 roughly. And what got LPs comfortable initially? And how have you seen the LP appetite for what you're doing expand? What happened between funds one and three that provided those proof points? Yeah, I think I, I think there's a lot of things. And once again, I have to really credit a lot of the serendipity, right place, right time. But I will say when we first started in 2017, um, while we had you know interesting track records individually, it was an open question. What have you done under the call Intuito platform name, right? Where Patrick in the past had the privilege to, you know, we had, you know, put checks into Gojek super early on. He went to school with the founders years ago. I had the privilege to back, you know, Peter and the team over at PayPal, Pound, et cetera, right? But uh, ultimately, um, you know, I think it was our early track records helped get us off the ground. That, you know, initial fund, 
um, you know, call it target raise of 10 million. Um, you know, we did, you know, step out and say that we want to put a pretty strong founding team commitment to make sure that, you know, no, fu- no other person could lose more money than us. So we were the biggest investor in our first thing. And then we built around that with an LP base that generally was, you know, call it folks that we knew directly over the years, uh, you know, from, you know, over the course of decades, if not generations. And that's kind of what got off. It's like, we were like a startup. It's like, Hey, look, Patrick, Eddie, you know, Tim, you know, smart guys. We think, you know, decent track from the past, but what have they done together? Very open question. And so people got on back, got comfortable. That got us off the ground, um, you know, early on. Uh, I do think that, you know, more of our investors in fund one were call it more, you know, you know, corporates, uh, you know, some a little bit institution, but, you know, uh, in more in family office. I think that, but that early momentum in 2017 to 2018, we started getting into some of the right deals. Um, did we lead all of them? I'd li- I hate to say we didn't all, but we did get board representation in the overwhelming majority of them. But could we get the right allocations? I think sometimes it was challenging because we weren't a brand. But I will say 18 months into it, once we had built a little bit of brand, our portfolio company started speaking on our behalf. You could ask the founders, who's the best? And they would say Intuitive Ventures. You could ask our LPs and they could start saying, hey, these guys are really gelled. They're hyper-local but global. No other firm can offer that because there's no, no such construct. That allowed us to go back to market in 2018 and raise a subsequent fund. Uh, we had some early indications saying it's not just in the companies we got into. We did have some called paper markups. And then, of course, the ecosystem itself was booming, right? So I think that started making our life a lot easier. When I started in 16, 17, I kid you not, Samir, I'd go into meetings and people would be off by magnitude of 10. When I go up and down Sandhill, parading around talking about Indonesia, uh, a scale market, that are, oh, is it like Taiwan, 25 minutes to it? Now, of course, you know, propensity to spend a different question. 2018, we rode some of the market momentum as well as some proof points in the deals we got into, what people were saying to us about in the market. Um, Silicon Valley inf- investors making their first investment in Asia, reaching out, leaning hard on us for our, their feedback, sometimes even placing us on the board for them. I think that gave us the, the credibility to go back and raise that second fund, target raise of 40 to 50 million. We closed $53 million. Once again, we're the biggest investor in the fund. I think that gave a lot of you know trust. People like, hey, you know, you can't lose more money. That's because we're the biggest investor. I think that was really, really critical. That founding team commitment, as well as we started showing early success of building out a team. So I'd argue our second fund, it played at Series A, and it really was like a startup raising a Series A. Like early in the kitchen, but is it repeatable? Open question. So then that kept moving along. Um, the pandemic hit, companies continued scaling in the market, more global capital, and people started realizing, hey, you know, is Indonesia Southeast Asia here to stay? And I think the answer started becoming yes. Like they started seeing it in our portfolio that the margin integrity that Intuito really focused on, we weren't chasing the companies that could raise money faster and lose money faster. We we're very heavily focused on moats, financial services, healthcare, and, re- and, and education for regulatory moat, very focused on operational dependency moats with B2B being our lead, whereas almost all the investors are really selling a top-down analysis focused on macro. They're very kind of shocked to, to find an investor come in, not even mention one thing about the macro, never talk about Southeast Asia region, but rather say Southeast Asia is a fallacy and tell the truth. And then lastly, uh, what do you call it? And so I think that gave us even more you know, credibility in the market. We started seeing more institutional players, insurance companies getting behind us. And um, I think the re-up rate, you know, it's really a function where, you know, today our re-up rate for all investors above a million dollars in our fund is 100% across three funds. So, and I think that allowed us to raise our last fund last year. We took it out in June. You know, frankly, we're supposed to take indications September, close in October. A month into it, we hit our number. So we're able to accelerate the closing based on the guidance of, you know, a number of luminaries in Midas list, even including top 10 saying, Eddie, would you tell your companies to keep raising or would you say just got to close and get back to business? So one thing that we've done right historically is pretty much run single close in all almost all our vehicles and get back to business. Whereas we do feel for a lot of emerging markets, and, you know, for good or for bad, 
folks often keep their funds open for a prolonged period of time, you know, a year or two years, which we really think is a disservice to two, two key constituents, A, our portfolio companies, and that we need to get back. That, that's where we do the work, right? And B, to our LPs, allowing early believers that believe in us to suffer in that later, the, the, the upticks or whatever is getting diluted by people coming in a close two years later that pay no interest and no step up. Yeah. And I, and I do think, you know, some of that, of course, is a byproduct of having to, you know, meet enough LPs, getting in front of people, getting them to actually get over the finish line. And that's why you see stats as, you know, the average fundraise for a fund one or fund two being between 12 and 18 months. And it is a luxury to have built this foundation of great LPs from, you know, really fund one and fund two that can carry over where you can accelerate that raise. But one of the things that on this show, we talk a lot about is portfolio construction. We don't talk a little bit about uh, too much about LP composition. I've heard you say that one of the key values of Intuito is being independent. And you've drawn that line to no LP having more than 10% of the entire fund. Why is that actually important? And why in your mind does that designate independence? Yeah, I think that's mission critical um, in particular in markets like in Indonesia, where the majority of funds you know, are anchored by a state-owned enterprise or by one or two major families. And I think that as uh, maybe at growth, that's not a big issue. You know, if you're a CVC, you want to deploy at Series C, Series D. Um, it's like the all the the Chinese in the Chinese Chinese proxy war. Is it Alibaba, SoftBank, or is it Tencent, JD Meituan? In China, as an entrepreneur, I'd be skeptical if you would take either of those players at seed. Right? You know, you kind of cut off one area of distribution. It'd be like choosing in America, let's say, um, you know, Comcast, AT and T, or Verizon at seed. Whereas those could be all beautiful distribution partners. So I would say in Indonesia, it's even more pronounced with fifty to 100 diversified conglomerates. And so entrepreneurs, having interviewed hundreds of entrepreneurs before we started our firm, one of the common um, you know, concerns, if you will, of many entrepreneurs is if I take affiliated capital with Group A, does that maybe limit my opportunities work Group B, C, D, F, G uh, at early stage? Now, if you do that at Series C, D, it doesn't matter anymore. And similarly, if I work with you know Group A or B, um, you know, in Indonesia or whatever market, will that, you know, you know, group that has unlimited financial resources, I won't necessarily say technical resources, replicate my business and that that's an open concern historically not to say that you know that that would be forever the case and i think by virtue of that that allowed us to you know really come to entrepreneurs and say look guys we're going to do what's best for you guys and gals um and if we do that we're going to do our lps right because we're gonna get the best financial return hence no lp you know in our firm we keep it very simple the ic is just myself and patrick you know uh, you know and we keep it very simple where there's no other ic member that maybe is you know part of uh, you know, certain family-owned conglomerate that may have, uh, you know, various motives, uh, you know, whether it be good or bad. And that's not to say, um, you know, CVCs aren't great. Um, don't get me wrong. If done correctly, the captive audience is beautiful. But I think what we've captured here is 35 of the top families in the world, uh, in Indonesia, where you get the best of both worlds, uh, but you get it in a manner that it's very controlled through us and that there's confidence that we'll, we'll do what's best for you as a company. And if that does correctly, then we'll do what's best for the LPs ultimately. And that's that. That's how we position it, and I think that's ever more important in Asia. One thing I'm really curious about is, you know, you have your LPs, uh, you have your founders, and then you have your firm, and it's you know this kind of triangle, and you're connecting really across both sides of the constituents, right? So you have family offices and institutionals that want to get in front of some of these companies. Some of these companies are selling into some of your LPs. 
What does that look like in practice from an activation standpoint? Yeah, let's talk through that in detail. So um, our process in terms of our investment process, once again, um, on average, we generally do three to six new investments a year. Like in terms of in market euphoria in 2021, you may think this is crazy. In terms of closed new deals last year, we closed one. Okay. Um, now, of course, we'll two spilled over into Q1. So maybe the argument's three if you want to base on term sheets. This year in market downturn, I'd argue that we've done five. So I think what we try to do is really avoid, you know, swing on the fear or greed cycle. And I think that's done our LPs very right from a vintage, you know, diversification pr- perspective versus dropping all our capital in 2021, just pulling back completely in 2022. Now, how does that work from an investment perspective? So the way I describe it is that we meet founders through two, two avenues. A, in our, what we call our Indonesian Southeast Asia Turtle Returning Program, where we canvass all the top programs in the United States, where at Harvard Business School, where I kid you not, in the last six years, that's, there's been six Indo companies, we're the biggest investor on the board, the majority where I teach and speak at the entrepreneurship class, right? So we meet the founders, but is it we just give them money at love at first sight? Absolutely not. We generally spend three to six months. Many of our peers will invest based on one meeting at a coffee chat at the end of, on a napkin. So we meet you. If the chemistry is good, we spend more time with you. If that goes well, you meet our family and friends. So who are our family and friends? It's all those traditional conglomerates and the online players in market. That is us physically taking you into those meetings. My co-founder, Patrick, our associates, myself, and seeing you discuss and seeing empirical evidence. Can you close that deal? If you do and know why, great. If you close it, don't know why, very bad. That's, I mean, it's okay, but could be luck. You fail miserably, but know why? That's like G.I. Joe. No one's had the battle. I think terrific, right? Within reason. And so it's that process. So if you're to ask on the institutional side, I would argue that, you know, a lot of these family-owned conglomerates, their family offices, their corporates, we we strike up those deals. Only after we build that, you know, empirical evidence, that gives issue, conviction issue a term sheet. In the last three to four years, we've never lost. In fact, uh, the only ones we've walked away where we found out the sheet was getting competed on. And like, if somebody's shopping for a bigger diamond ring, we just don't play if, because we do all the work up front, you know, right? So that's how the first piece is in terms of the family-owned conglomerates and the online players, how we rope them into that conversation. Now, in terms of how we, uh, on, on the capital side, obviously in certain rounds, you know, early on, we will slot in founder of ABCDFG, you know, a lot of the top founders from Silicon Valley, from North Asian. So we can slot them in alongside, we lead almost all our deals at early stage. We generally shoot for 15 to 22 and a half percent ownership. That's our kind of, uh, you know, MVP, minimum viable for us to play, you know, if you will, there. Now, at growth, once we're in that deal, that's when I bring it to Silicon Valley, take it to my partners, you know, like the folks at Pantera, which did our, you know, our Coinbase, like our friends at Kleiner Perkins, you know, like our friends over in New York at Tiger Global, like our friends at, you know, call it DST. And, and that's our model. Once we're in, we co- we bring these companies back to market and then we take it to a lot of our global friends, you know, like, and then really, you know, put, put our name behind it and not just our name behind it, but our money behind it. So the common thread in Tudo Ventures is we are very comfortable once we're in a deal, going super parada and co-leading multiple rounds down the road as well. And, and the beauty of it is in many cases, a lot of these firms maybe from a you know scale perspective are substantially larger. So they understand when we put this level of capital to business, you know, sometimes 15% of fund size, not more, very much driven off the learnings from, you know, some some great folks I have the privilege to partner with over the years, whether it be Altos Ventures, whether it be Founders Fund, et cetera, in that level of concentration. That's how you generate returns. And, and, and that's, and we're very high conviction based, you know, in six years, we've done 26 investments. I mean, I'd argue our portfolio construction, getting back to your question, is more akin to a private equity fund in that our early stage portfolio generally ranges from 12 to 15 companies per fund. And then, you know, and more, more recent times in our fund one, we said we do 12 to 16 companies. We ended up at 16. In fund two, we said we do call it 12 to, I believe, uh, 14 or 12. We did 12. And then in fund three, we told you know our peers, 
uh, our key LPs. Look, guys, we're going to do something very unique in Fund 3, single vehicle with both an opportunity fund and growth uh, allocation all in one vehicle. We said we do 40% for growth. So identify three to four names where we're putting call 8 to 12% of fund size into. Usually we know them inside go heavy. And that's usually, and then on the early stage five, we said we'd call it six series A's and call it, you know, four pre-A's. So ultimately a portfolio construction, you know, pretty, pretty small of call 12 to 14 names. And so, so I think that's what, um, you know, both portfolio construction and then LP construction historically, U.S. has been our large source of capital called 30 to 35% of capital. So it has been a fair amount of education, which has been great. You know, it's getting increasingly easier thanks to all the great founders in market. Uh, you know, Indonesia, of course, been a core component for us, called 25 to 30%. Certain pockets of North Asia, you know, certainly some great inroads into, uh, you know, Europe and the Middle East, given that, you know, even markets like UAE now have a G2G relationship with Indonesia, tasked with deploying 10 billion into the market. So it's been really, really exciting times to be that Indonesia beachhead strategy, if you will, for the world. And the way we're able to achieve that is that, um, you know, we have been investors in Silicon Valley, other markets for 20 some years. So we're not some random showing up, rather, there's some familiarity. Since you have spent so much time with Silicon Valley VCs, and I know you're familiar with the traditional portfolio construction of 25 to 30 companies, maybe sometimes more, particularly at the uh, seed stage, and you decided to go down the route of a much more concentrated philosophy of 12 to 14 companies, at least right now. So I'd love to hear, how did you land on a more concentrated portfolio, and how do you get comfortable with having enough shots at goal to really hit the parallel returns. And then ultimately, I'd, I'd love to hear how you think about ownership with smaller portfolios. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fabulous question. Samir, um, you know, will will there be a day where we run a traditional Silicon Valley portfolio, 25 to 30 names? I think it's really to depend on ecosystem development, right? I mean, getting back to, once again, this is a country in 2015, even if I wanted to build a 20, not to say there, some of my peers are doing 25 new deals a quarter, right? But um, it is a country with only, I kid you not, um, you know, call it a hundred some companies with a value share of 25 million today, right? So um, if I were to do 25 to 30 companies, I would be, is there that many good companies to do? Maybe not, right? Would be my first feedback. Secondly, um, we do de-risk and we do that upfront. It's not that we deploy capital, then we de-risk it. It's, I've done that all upfront three to six months now. There were moments in 2021 in market euphoria that I did pull myself aside and look in the mirror and ask my partner, like, hey, should we be a little bit more flexible on pre? And I think the answer is yes. And that pre-A now is getting a little bit more developed, stronger founders, founders that have more operating experience in market. Now, um, in terms of um, reserves, um, you know, our typical structure, you know, for our funds, you know, when we launched our first fund, frankly, in 2017, I mean, we had, it was so small, it was 20 million. And I told the LPs, look, guys, we're going to do 60 to 66% for initial check and 33% for reserves. I'm very proud to say today um, we ended up in terms of all deployed, we're about to write our last check. It's going to be 48% initial check, 52% reserve, which I think is pretty spectacular. I think it's a tribute to the fact that our fall-on rate in Fund 1 is 94%, soon to be a 100%, in that we've eliminated commercial risk, uh, where the global fall-on rate for pre and my understanding, is 40%. We're going to be at 94 to 100, 94 worst case, because we already did that, 100%, right? So I, we eliminated fall-on risk. And then, so so, so that, that that's how we set up in Fund 1. In Fund 2, we advocated for um, a little bit more uh, balanced. So Fund 1 was 66-33. Fund 2, we said, hey, guys, let's try to do 60-40, um, I think, was, was kind of our goal. I think where we're tracking is um, more akin to 55-45, if not more like 50-50. So I think that's really, really nice. And fund three, we told our LPs, you know, we want to raise 100. We got 144. Um, if I recall correctly, I think that it was, we were the first time we came out and said, the majority of our capital will actually be for reserves. 
where you know we're going to choose six Series A's. We're going to deploy call three to eight million in each case. So let's just run some basic numbers there. Let's remove the the, the growth bucket, which is call forty percent. So out of the 60 percent, which accounts to call it, let's say um, approximately, it's called eighty million dollars. I told people that my Series A's, I'd write six checks. I call an average of maybe uh, five or six million. So that's thirty million, let's say. And then I said for my pre A's, I'd write four checks of call it one to three, so two million, so eight. So 48 million. So out of that bucket, it was almost break even, like call it 40 for, and then maybe, you know, 40, 40. Uh, so 50, 50. So we're gravitating in that direction is what, what I'm getting at. And if we have the luxury to raise more vehicles, you know, my partner and I have discussed, you know, if we ever have the luxury to do a fund four, as the market ecosystem goes more deep and we want to continue supporting our companies longer and going forward, I do think that, you know, if we had the luxury to ever do another fund four, at least out of the early stage pocket, we'd probably do single vehicle. I, I, I'd probably be advocating for 40, 60. 40% for initial ticket and 60, 60% for fall-on, given that, like I said, our fall-on rate in fund one's been 94%, soon to be 100% as well. And in fund two, similar, we're already at 75% fall-on rate. And it's, well, do we get to near 100? Maybe. And then fund three, I feel pretty good about, given that we've really you know built in these core moats. We're so skeptical as the capital is a moat, so skeptical as brand is a moat for early stage. And, and we're so heavy at early stage on you know really B2B and really um, you know heavy regulatory regulated industries. You mentioned in 2021, only doing three deals of which one funded, certainly a big departure from the average venture firm where 2021 was one of the most active years. And within that, the thing that plagued a lot of the industry was the time to make a decision on a deal was truncated, sometimes sub a week. And in your case, you run a long diligence process to de-risk these companies. How do you balance between staying true to the discipline of taking time, but at the same time, not missing out on a company because your diligence process is simply not market from a timing standpoint? I think that's a fabulous question. And, um, you know, we get that question all the time. I think that just the, for early stage strategy is very predicated in um, investing. I'd like to say almost in uninvestable businesses. And I'd argue that many of um, the, the peers in the market for right or for wrong, they've done great, are very um, macro-driven investors. So they'll talk about Southeast Asia as a region. They'll talk about what's trendy sectors. They'll put out you know, um, you know know white papers on this and that. And that's just not how we invest. We're bottom-up investors. So it could be a, a case that the founders that gravitate to us generally are generally a little bit less focused on who can raise money faster, lose money faster, a little less consumer-focused, a little less brand-focused. Um, a lot of our business are a little bit more grind based, you know, more B two B, more B two B to C, and I think that's kind of worked out to our favor. So we're really more looking for, you know, really overlooked, underfunded sectors. Really, um, not chasing trends, um, you know, not chasing hot sectors. A lot of learnings. I think one of the, you know, we had discussed, um, you know, in the lead up to this, uh, you know, the best investment advice that we've ever received, and I really think it's um a lot of learnings from some of the top managers, whether it be, uh, you know, Fantasy Fund, Altos, about you know, kind of, you know. Straying away from trends and hot sectors, at least at early stage, I would argue, as um, they, they tend to attract sometimes not the right founders. Um, not to say there's some great founders, and but you do generally find these sectors to be very noisy, right? You know, you read about in the Google Tomasic report, SME enablement, earns way to access, and the next day you have ten people, beautiful resumes, all present incredibly well, but um, very open question: the why. What's their unique insight? Um, what is the why? Why are they doing this versus a founder that has a little bit more founder market fit and more, uh, you know, very more niche sector, right? So um, I'm just not confident I can choose the right founder in those type of sectors. Unless I've worked with a, it's, it's in networks and we have partnered with a prior, then that's different, right? Secondly, um, a lot of non-independent thinking VCs will chase it, right? Like LP pressure, hey, what's your play this? What's your play this? What's, and boom, valuation. So, so 
the valuation, bad entry price, tough to tease out the fake founders, employees, you know, you read the Google Tomasic report, uh, part of the young employees, new folks, they want to work on what's on trend. And once again, you can't retain the talent. So it's, it's, it's a war about who can pay more. And I don't like to get any, like who can pay employees, employee retention bad. And the last piece, obviously customer acquisition, right? Like um, in these markets, great, you raise the money. Well, what's next? How do you stand out amongst the crowd? Growth, 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 growth. And you know, in that case, subsidy, subsidy, subsidy. So I think as a venture investor, you know, having spent time with a lot of the luminaries out here, uh, th- those are things that they taught me. It's just like, you don't want companies that are uh, high entry price, not to say at early stage, it's probably okay. You the right company, but you know, high entry price, uh, tough to tease out the fake founders, can't retain them, please. Uh, and, and so all bad things as an investor. So I would say that for us, um, you know, we, we like identifying businesses where, like this in our cryptocurrency exchange business, it was like, hey, look, you know, you you can't go work at GoTo or C on crypto. So you join us because you believe. When I backed that business, it wasn't that it was a Bitcoin, you know, 70,000. It was, I found the founder at Bitcoin 6,000 in 2018 in October at the Harvard campus. Bitcoin proceeded to go down by down to 3000 and some fa- the, the, the one of the co-founders parted ways to do something else not to say they didn't believe in it but you know so it's down to one founder so very strong fact is that they believe others are insane you know what i mean bitcoin 3000 teach all the fake founders that allowed us to get all the employees people would join us because they joined the mission we, we had no money and then once we got you know the money we, we knew who the customer was right so i think that really um the, the piece of advice for us to succeed is um, where I didn't feel we lost that much is that like on some of the more trend-driven businesses, we didn't have the luxury in fund one and two because we didn't have the capital base. But in fund three, we can catch up. Like at growth, I have the ability to write $20 million checks now. So I'm very happy to let the uh, it play out and not to say, and just say, hey, look, I was wrong. I made a mistake or I wasn't smart enough. But once you're down to two companies, I feel I can choose. But when it's six, seven, eight companies, particularly early stage, very tough to make choices. So Going back to, we really, our early stage strategy is so focused on investing in kind of really these overlooked, underfunded sectors that are you know, almost uninvestable by, uh, in the eyes of many uh, other, um, I, I mean, when I find all the talent in genetics, for example, we let a genetics play where people said it's too early, but I'd argue if it's too early, uh, if we can sustain it, getting back with our reserves and just keep anchoring, keeping long, by the time it's ready, no copycat business can come up, chase us because from a regulatory perspective, from a talent perspective. Eddie, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been such a joy to watch how the uh, the firm has grown, how you've evolved over the years. And, uh, you know, again, really uh, appreciate you being on today. Yeah, thanks again, Samir. And um, yeah, thanks for being a believer in us since uh, day zero, day negative. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Eddie. To learn more about him or Intuito Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.